Welcome to the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast, a weekly podcast for writers. Grab a cup of coffee, perhaps some paper and pen, and enjoy an interview with an author, a chat with a writing tool creator, perhaps a conversation with an editor or other publishing expert, as well as Kat's thoughts on writing and her own creative journey. You'll laugh, you'll cry, well, hopefully not actually cry, but you will probably learn something, and I hope you'll be inspired to write, because as I always say, you have a story, you should write it down. This is Pencils and Lipstick. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Pencils and Lipstick podcast. I'm Kat Caldwell. Today is episode 167, and I am recording the first part of this episode on Friday, January 27th from my slightly cold office way at the top of my house. How are you all doing? I hope that your week has gone well. I cannot believe that we are already at the end of the week and we are about to start a new month next week. That's insane. So today I have a lovely guest, Jack Canfora. He runs an entire theater show, um, theater troupe, I guess they're called, online. It was a fascinating conversation to talk about storytelling from the point of view of screenwriting and from acting it out. He's also an actor. Um, So in sort of that scheme of things, I guess, um, we're going to talk a little bit about dialogue as novelists in this first part. Jack and I talk about dialogue in screenwriting and then how the actors, you know, act it out. But many of you are short story writers or novelists and writing dialogue um, from that point of view is a little bit different. So we're going to go into a couple tips on writing better dialogue Before we do that, um, would you share this episode, this podcast with any other writer friends that you know, anyone who wants tips on dialogue, anyone who likes listening to all things writing? Be sure to subscribe on your favorite app and to leave a review, especially if you're on Apple or Google, that really helps the show just for value for value. I bring you value of of interviews and writing tips, and you can bring value to the show by sharing it, reviewing it, subscribing. It really helps me know where everyone is, you know, and to to see what people are liking (laughs) so that I can bring in more of the people that you like. I'm also really excited about the book of the week. If you haven't heard, we are going to start a book of the week um, sort of broadcast or ad or commercial to the Pencils and Lipstick episodes. So if you are a writer and you have a book that you want announced out to a you know, a couple hundred thousand listeners, not hundred thousand, couple hundred <laughs> listeners. My goodness, I'd love it if you guys were all hundred thousand out there. But we we get between 800 and 1,000 listeners every week, as far as I can tell from the analytics that I can figure out. Um, and so if you want people to hear about your book, you can click the link in the show notes below and you can fill out this short little form telling me about your book and then I'll get back to you. It is $15 to get your about 60 second to 90 second ad at the top of the show um, and to tell everyone about your book. So I thought it would be fun to be able to have a new place to share our books because of course we're always looking for new places to market, right? And you know, to also just 
tell each other as listeners of Pencils and Lipstick about the books that that we have gotten out there that we've published. And if you know of a writer who you think um, their book is awesome and that they should tell the whole world, tell them to come on over to Pencils and Lipstick, fill out the form, and at least tell our world all about their book. So that is in the show notes. You can also find a link on my Instagram page, catcaldwell.author, on the bio link and Pencils and Lipstick bio link as well. That's Pencils and Lipstick all spelled out on Instagram. You can also find it at the Pencils and Lipstick website. It's all spelled out, pencilsandlipstick.com. So there's tons of places that you can find that one form and fill it out. And then we'll talk about your book. We'll, I'll record an ad for it. And it's just $15. I thought that it would be a great way to share your published work. So dialogue. <laughs> As I edit and get my um, book out to the editor, I am listening to it. I like listening to it to sort of make me focus um, on what I'm doing at that moment, and that's editing. So I have Word reading it to me while I edit it on Scrivener. And of course, that makes me, you know, really listen to the dialogue. And dialogue, let me just tell you, it can be hard. Um, There are some people out there that find dialogue really easy. Um, But in order to do dialogue well, it is not something that we should just, you know, do whenever, you know, do whatever, write whatever. It really is something that we should think um, strategically about because it is otherwise boring. It can be boring and, and make people put your book down. It can be, it can become unrealistic if we don't think strategically about it. Um, or it can just not really add much to the story, or it can be the opposite of that. It can add to it. It can make people perk up. It can make people want to read on, right? So it is not a throwaway for sure in your book. In fact, no word in your book is a throwaway or it shouldn't be. So dialogue, how can we make it a little bit better? Let's let's go through some tips here. First of all, above anything, um, especially by the end of the editing of your book, you should know each character and each character should have a voice. That is one of the reasons why we do these different exercises with characters to really get to know them. Um, you need to know where they're from. You need to understand their worldview. You need to understand what they would and wouldn't say out loud, right? Versus what maybe they're thinking or maybe they're acting on and not saying. You need to understand your character that will give them a distinct voice in the the book. That way, when you have sort of this dialogue running, you won't have to say, Jack said, Reba said, Jack said, Reba said, (laughs) all the time. Of course, you want to have dialogue tags in there, but you can get away with not putting them in there all the time because each character is going to have that distinctive voice and we're not going to get lost as readers. Now, you got to understand that as a writer, you know who's talking, but you have to understand that the reader is sitting there reading it and they're not in your head and they don't know what's coming down the line. And so it has to be very clear to them who is speaking, right? Um, So you have to know their voice and you do that by understanding the characters. Now, as we, you know, understand our characters, we understand where they're from. So let's say in, 
in the United States, there's quite a difference in accent between um, New York and Alabama and Washington State. So when you're when you're going along with dialects and accents, you got to be a little careful. So we know where our characters from. Let's say they're from the South, or let's say let's say we have a character from Alabama in the South of America, uh, South in the United States, and somebody from Scotland. Um, you could write out every single word of their dialogue into their dialect, right? But you have to be careful that that can get really tiring to the reader. And and quite frankly, as someone who studied linguistics and studied the phonetic alphabet and, you know, understands these different ways of pronunciation, not everyone is going to pronounce the word the same as you do with just a couple, you know, apoth- like um, apostrophes. I don't know why I can't say that word. Like maybe like dropping a vowel and apostrophe and all this and sort of, we might not read the word how you hear it in your head. Um, and let's say that the reader is like in Germany and they don't really know <laughs> like what they're supposed to be reading. So you have to be careful with um, literally spelling out dialects. Um, it it is a lot easier to sort of weave into the prose um, that a person has an accent and possibly adding certain things that that give character to their voice. That sort of goes into um, like a line, a tagline that they have, or the, a way of saying things. Let's say um, you're writing a book with well. Okay, so one of the characters in my book is this like kind of gritty boxing um, sort of dips into the underworld of drugs guy in his 50s. And so what I've given him is a certain tag. He always calls my main character kid. So like in the moment that he calls him Tristan, it, it feels like, oh, like he's trying to get, you know, his attention. But otherwise he calls him kid, nothing else, kid. Like, first of all, it's a bit derogatory like to say that to a grown adult, right? Um, it it places him in his mind above my my main character. It's a bit annoying for the main character to constantly be called kid, right? So, and he's the only character to, that does that. So, you can um, instead of writing out the dialect again, would be very careful with choosing to do that. You can give them sort of little little. Um, tags like that. So if they're Scottish, um, they might say when, which is like a Scottish, I don't even know if I'm saying that correctly, but it's a Scottish word for kid, you know, you kind of have to find something that people would understand, but you know, you get the idea, right? Um, so just think of like, let's say you have five characters with five different accents or dialects, like that's going to get really tiring from the for the reader, right? So maybe just saying, you know, in his he kept dropping the articles um, because he, of his Russian accent, you know, and and you could sort of play around with that, but but you have to be careful. And that goes into my next um, ad- piece of advice for you is to read it aloud, <laughs> read your dialect, your dialogue aloud. And if you do have a dialect that you've sort of written out, see if it's 
how comfortable it is for you to read it aloud. Does it get tiring? Is it too much? Um, are people going to understand it? And if it, it, you know, if it is too much and it is getting tiring, what it's basically doing is pulling the reader out of your story, which you don't want to do. So then find another way to let the reader know that they have an accent or they are talking in a certain way, right? But read it aloud as well, even if you don't have dial- dialect you know, spelled out there or accent spelled out. You have to read your dialogue aloud. First of all, this is a society that is moving into audio. Here we are on a podcast and you're listening to me in audio. Audiobooks are big right now and they're only growing bigger. Like Spotify and Audible have invested more money into audio. Um, Jack Canfor and I talk about how they... Audible's investing in these like um, audio radio shows, you know, which is great for him. I think that is amazing. So you need to understand what your dialogue sounds like in audio. And you can only do that when you read it aloud or have it read to you, um, which is easy to do on a computer and not so easy to do on a phone. But if you have a computer or a tablet, you can open up uh, Google Docs or Word, and there is a read aloud button there. And I think on Google, you have to like download the sort of app that does it. And some of it, I think it kind of depends on what computer you have or whatever, but you can find a tutorial about that online on Word doc. It's under the review tab and it's called read aloud. Um, But it's also great for you to read it. You'd be amazed at what you would see if you if you read both your prose and your dialogue aloud. So I love the, this line that John Truby says. He says, if it is something that anybody would say in that moment, cut it <laughs> because it's boring. So what he's saying is like, if we're all sitting around in a coffee shop cut all the stuff that would typically happen. You know, the, hey, how's it going? Hey, how's your kid? Oh my gosh. Yeah, you got your hair cut. I think it looks great. <laughs> you know, like cut that stuff. Just cut it. Unless it's, you know, maybe a short story and you're literally talking about the fact that the mom gets in the car every day after school and it's like Groundhog's Day and the kids never say anything because everything's always fine. <laughs> and Otherwise, other than that, unless it's like a a study on, you know, the, the social doctrines between mother and child after school, how's it going? Fine. How was your day? Fine. Other than that, you need to cut it. Like dialogue in your novel needs to pay for its rent of that space. It, you don't want to like, hey, doc, Nice to see you. Nice to see you again, too. It's been six months since your last physical. Yeah, but life's okay. How's how's the wife? The wife is great. No, get to, there's some interesting things on your scan that are a bit concerning that we need to go over. That's going to capture your reader's attention. The doctor saying that to you is, you know, okay, what's going to happen? We don't need all the other stuff. So it's funny how our brains can can fill in that there were some greetings. Like we as readers 
don't ever assume that they've been rude to each other. You know, we just assume that the greetings have happened and we're getting to the meat. So make sure that your the dialogue on that page is really paying for its rent, that it is grabbing the reader's attention. Okay. So if it isn't, if it's something that everyone and anyone would say in that situation, cut it out, just delete. Another tip is that people in real life are not upfront and honest in their dialogue. We do not go around saying everything that we feel and believe and think. We are constantly adapting what we say to the people around us. And we're constantly swallowing our words, right? And keeping quiet. Um, That is the whole point between like conflict a lot of times is something that somebody didn't say or that they suddenly blow up and do say things. And even in arguments, humans don't always say things concisely and truthfully, okay? So you have to realize that. Like I have read a lot of dialogue in which they literally say exactly how they feel, what they think, you know, and and it just feels wrong and off. Um, Unless the guy's proposing and has like a whole speech written down, you know, if they're sitting on the couch and watching television, he doesn't turn to her and say, you know, ever since you entered my life, it has just become better. And I just think that you are the person that has made me more complete, blah, blah, blah. Who knows? This this never happens, right? Or, or a husband comes home and says, what's wrong, hun? And she says, what's wrong? You know, you forgot to take out the trash and therefore I had to take out, you know, take it out and run after the trash truck. And I tripped over the dog and it landed in a, in a puddle of oil. Um, you, a lot of times she'll say nothing had a rough morning, right? (laughs) Like maybe eventually she'll say the whole spiel. Um, but people like have to have things dragged out of them. Right. Um, Now, this goes into understanding your characters. So if I had my three kids as characters in my book, the middle child would take a whole page to get the story dragged out of her, Um, especially if it's like bad news. (laughs) You know, the younger child would start with all the excuses (laughs) and the older child would be like, nothing, 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 nothing. (laughs) And, And then suddenly like go into a whole whole um rampage on on things right so they are different they as characters they would be different um and their anticipation of what i would think or say is different and so we have to think about that as well but please 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 do not have your character saying every thing that they think and being completely honest all the time um Going into that, when people are in a conversation, I really like what Jeff Elkins of The Dialogue Doctor says, and I'll have his link in the show notes below, um, that he always points out that more likely than not, when you have Kat saying, what I want you to do is um, pick up the 
the the trash that's on the floor, grab your books, put them into your backpack. Then I need you to turn on the stove and start cooking dinner because I got an email from your teacher and it said that you hadn't done this and I can't believe and I'm going on a rampage, right? The response to that um my daughter would not go through all the lists. <laughs> she would either say make up your mind on what you want me to do or she would go that email that my teacher sent was actually old. I already did it. She would only grab on to the last part of what I said. All right, he always points this out with and a lot of times we will like chunk our dialogue in which a character will go on and on about something and usually in an argument like they're giving all their excuses and then the response will be the next character goes back to the starting of that dialogue and starts listing out, you know, like responding one one to one of everything that the that their spouse has said in the novel. And that's just not true to life either. We grab on either to the thing that we think is not true and that triggers us, right? Or the last thing of the dialogue. And this is why we we read it aloud. You can sort of start seeing, ah, you know, that's not very realistic. So I will have Jeff Elkins, um, thedialogedoctor.com. The link is in the show notes. He has tons and tons of dialogue and he has a podcast as well, The Dialogue Doctor, doctor that is worth listening to about dialogue as well. But I love that he says that like people don't respond to every single thing as a list. They respond to the last thing the person says or what has triggered them. So a little bit of a hint um, when you're writing dialogue, you don't always have to have the dialogue tag at the end, like Jack said quietly you know, (laughs) whatever. Um, You can have something at the beginning that can slow down the dialogue. And whether or not you put it at the beginning of what he says, where he, he can say, Jack picked up his leather coat and slipped his arms into each sleeve. Sure, let's go. I'm ready now. So that's not the most inspiring piece of dialogue, but Jack doing these actions slows down his response and gives us the idea that he is not responding right away, right? So as a reader, we see, okay, he's pausing and he's taking his time to answer. And if you flip it, you can say, sure, let's go. I'm ready, Jack said, as he tossed his leather coat over his shoulder. That sort of gives us more urgency, like he's ready as he is, and he's just going to grab things as he goes. So um, Jeff Elkins also talks about this and just sort of where you're putting the action before or after um, the dialogue. A lot of times, um, especially in the beginning of writing, we'll put like all the the action after he said and comma, blah, 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 you know, as he's doing all this. But it really um, changes things if you put it at the beginning. Um, or at the end, it can change the rhythm of the dialogue and give the reader a sensation of the rhythm of what the characters are doing. So those are kind of a couple different tips. That's definitely not an exhaustive list or (laughs) tips of dialogue and amping up your dialogue and, you know, sprucing it up and making sure that it is um, better and better and better. But I hope that it helps you a little bit. We're going to talk about dialogue a little bit more with um, Jack Canfora and screenwriting and acting it out. So I hope you stick around for that. Before we get into it, we'll have a little um, 
ad for you. Remember that all of these sponsors are either software tools that I use, that I love, or um, other writing help that I love and or marketing. So everything that is on the show is something that that I have used, that I talk about um, often, and that I think is beneficial to you as a writer. So when you click the link in the show notes below, if you decide that you want... um, if you want the software or the editing software, the writing tool, whatever it is on each show that I talk about, the links in the show notes below are typically affiliate links. Um, So that goes to the show. And if you want to sponsor the show or just support the show um, because you want to see it keep going and you just want to add value for value to pencils and lipstick, that is also a appreciated and available for you between $1, $5, $10, whatever you think the show is worth. Those links are in the show notes as well. I would love to keep the show going, but it does take work and it does take a little bit of effort on my part and my editor's part, Christy, and my assistant's Mark's part. So we want to keep the show going. I appreciate you listening. I appreciate you sharing the show. And I appreciate every time you click the links below and buy the products that I think are, you know, the gold standard of writing novels and marketing our stuff. Or if you just decide to support the show on your own, I truly, truly appreciate any sort of value that you think the show deserves. You guys are awesome. So now let's get into the second part of the show. I love highlighting the apps and software that I use to make my writing smoother, better, or prepped to go to the editor. And one of those apps is ProWritingAid. ProWritingAid can help you improve your writing quickly and efficiently with thousands of grammar, spelling, and readability improvements delivered in real time as you write. I just connect it with my word processor or even with Scrivener, and I can get real-time data from them. ProWritingAid has more writing reports than any other editing software. The editing tool highlights elements like repetitiveness, vague wording, sentence length variation, over-dependence on adverbs, passive voice, and over-complicated sentence constructions, and so much more. Now, you can't rely solely on ProWritingAid, but it is a great way to see how your writing is improving, where you need to maybe develop it a little bit more, and it gets rid of all those pesky little things before you send it to your actual editor, which helps them save time. And you know if it helps them save time, it helps you save money. I always run my blog posts, my newsletter, my books, everything through ProWritingAid because by the end of the day, my eyes are too tired to see those pesky little problems, whether it's a comma, whether it's a word that changed because I missed the spelling. Whatever it is, ProWritingAid is there for me. If you want to check out this awesome software, just click the links below. There's a link for free resources and there's a link for a discount just for you.
Jack Canfora is an award-winning American playwright, actor, musician, and teacher. After receiving his dramatic training at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, he began his career as an actor in regional theater, working mostly in Shakespearean roles such as Mercutio and Macbeth. He's been hailed by the Associated Press as white-hot entertainment for his off-Broadway plays including Poetic License, Place Setting, and Jericho, a New York Times critic's pick. He was nominated along with Edward Albee, Elaine May, and Teresa Redbeck for the Newark Stars Ledger's Best Play in 2007. Jack is the recipient of two Edgerton Playwriting Awards for Jericho in 2010 and The Source in 2018. He won the 2016 Webby Award for Best Writing in a Web Series. Jack is also the Artistic Director of New Normal Rap. And before we get into the interview, I want to let you know that you can see his play Jericho at newnormalrep.org forward slash bonus. Just use the password NNR, all capitals, 2022. Of course, that link and the password will be in the show notes. Hello, Jack Canfor. I'm super excited to have you with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, um, this is a podcast about writing and you have done some writing, but I'm excited to to talk to you about theater because theater mm. is storytelling, right? So before we get into that, would you tell people a little bit about yourself? Yeah, well, I mean, just in in, in terms of that, you know, theater uh uh, part of it. I, I started, I trained as an actor, uh, you know, I, I particularly Shakespearean acting, which I was really oh. into. Uh, I know it makes me sound fancy. Um, and, um, but as my, uh, I, as I reach around close to 30, <clears throat> my, uh, I got married and I was going to have a kid and that kid was, just, you know, as I say, going to want to eat every single day. So <laughs> I know. that's three sort of times. Out a lot of theater. Yeah. They, <laughs> and I spoiled them. I sometimes would let him eat more than once a day. And um, so it meant sort of having to get a, a full-time job, mm. which actually I ended up loving, uh, which, which was teaching for a while, teaching literature, which was a great way to learn about writing, by the way. Right. Um, and um the way I could stay connected to theater really uh, was through writing. And so really now uh, I'm just, I've been a playwright for, you know, 20 years yeah. at this point. So writing didn't come into the equation before feeding the child. Well, it started to, because I mean, it, oddly enough, my, my two uh, areas where I got any work as an actor was uh, doing some Shakespeare, also doing improv slash sketch comedy. So I started writing sketch comedy um, in my late twenties, mid twenties. And, uh, it was, I don't have any formal training as a writer, but it was great training because we would write uh, material and then we perform it that week. And uh, the audience is the best teacher in the world. Yeah. Right? So, they'd, you know, you'd find out what worked and you'd also find out in a very big way what didn't work. And so eventually you would try and catch on to the difference. That's interesting. So is there a big difference between Shakespeare and comedy sketch? Like that seems like it's just. Yeah, they're pretty radically different yeah. in a lot of ways. Um I mean, yeah, I, I, I think so. I, I think in a lot of different ways. But uh, in the one commonality, I guess, the sketches that we tended to write in the sketches in, in Shakespeare, believe me, it's not in terms of quality uh, of, of, of language, but it is a, a reliance on language. Like we didn't do wacky characters. You know, we had some usually bizarre premise and then half the 
um, fun of the sketches, if they tended to, turned out to be fun, was was the language, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so that was always the key for us. We weren't big on you know, recurring characters or anything like that. I think we were, we were very much influenced by Monty Python, which is incredibly dense and wordy. Yeah. Uh, and so, and I guess the overlap between the two, uh, apart from, uh, to me, would be that a, a love of and an enjoyment of language. Right. Uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, because I, as I think of, like, Shakespeare, when I was in high school, I finally it like finally clicked when we went to go see people perform it. And the yeah, way that they used the language was like, oh. Yeah, I when can't. I would teach Shakespeare, I would never allow them to read out loud in class for the same reason I wouldn't allow beginning musicians to uh, play Mozart and have that experience be what, you know, the class experiences as Mozart. Uh, you know, we, we would always watch it and then we would go back and read the text because these, it takes some training, it takes some knowing what you're doing with Shakespeare to make it make sense to the modern ear mm. um, and listening to a bunch of bored 15 year olds try and, you know, slog their way through it, which is most of our experience in high school. Yes. Shakespeare. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing you could put in, put, you know, have read in that context that would sound interesting and wouldn't be confusing. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I just showed my 15 year old, the, the Romeo and Juliet from the nineties, but my favorite character in that uh, movie is the cousin <laughs> because he makes like the way that he plays the rhythm on the words is just well that's that's the way to do it yeah i mean mercutio uh is yes that, mercutio is yeah. yes is the best role and i i did a lot of you know when i was acting i played mercutio a lot and it's first of all he gets all the good lines he's got an amazing fight scene an amazing death scene and then you're done in intermissions you can leave so it's great <laughs> I like that. Um, yes, I, I. But I do think there is something about language. So I, mm. I love language. I love the way, you know. The I, I, I don't want to sound pretentious, but I like l literature. You know, I liked yeah, the yeah. classics, the the language, and I do think there's something missing a little bit these days because we're almost um, we're so influenced by television, you know. Yeah. And we, it's like we're trying to write the the panoramic scene, you know, instead of the dialogue, yeah. like the the language. But you must, I mean, if you're doing sketch, that that must be all mostly dialogue, right? Well, it was, you know, back when I haven't done sketch in, in years, but yeah, it was. And when I do plays, my plays tend to be very language heavy, um, as opposed to um, visually, you mm. know, um, you know, uh, or, or, or image driven, which some playwrights have, but. You know, it's funny. I was just thinking about this today. I mean, like even screen, like screenplays, which has a, obviously they have an overlap with uh, stage plays, uh -huh. but they're very different. And okay. really, I think in modern screenplays, by as the rule of thumb is that language is a necessary evil. And if you uh, can tell a story, I mean, it's all told visually. Right. And if you even watch a movie from the seventies or eighties, let alone before then, the language is so much more dense. There are so many more scenes where people were just talking. Yeah. And now, you know, it's it's very rare that happens. I'm not saying it doesn't, but it's it's the exception and not the rule. You want to tell the story with pictures the whole time. I mean, it's called motion pictures for a reason. True. But in, and in stage plays, there can often be, there are a lot of great writers who rely a lot on, um, you know, image-driven text. Uh, I... I don't, I'm not very good at, at, at visualizing things. And so it tends to be very dialogue driven, which is more acceptable in plays than it is say in uh, movies. So okay. um, it's more forgiving of my weaknesses. 
<laughs> stage well, plays. You, you would think, I mean, I, I don't get to the theater as often as I would like to, but they're very constricted by the amount of space they have. And so yeah. as far as I've seen, whether it's a musical or whether it's just strictly dialogue, mm -hmm. You, the only way that you understand what's going on half the time is through the language. You know? Right. I, well, I mean, that's that's certainly true. I mean, there are, are plays that have, especially like the high budget ones, have dazzling Ooh, sort okay. of scenery. And, and the constrictions even in some ways, uh, though, to your point, uh, have become more and more constricting in recent decades. I mean, if you go back and read or, or I preferably watch a lot of the classic American plays in the 40s and 50s, which in some ways is considered like, you know, the height of... American theater, although I think that's a little simplistic, but you like Death of a Salesman or you know certainly Tennessee Williams stuff. Um, the cast, there'd be like 15, 20 people in the cast. You know, there'd be like four or five main characters. Um, and uh, today, you, as a writer, as a playwright, you are urged to, uh, if you can, make it a two-character play, maybe three or four. Um, wow. I've had a I had a play that's been produced a lot, but I've also had theaters come to me saying we'd love to produce it, but the cast is just simply too big, and it's a six character play. Oh my gosh! Okay, so you're yeah. being restricted a lot by budget more than anything by like yeah, exactly right. And you know, and at times that's certainly annoying, but it's also I mean, there if you try and have the right attitude about it, strictures can be also uh, a fun challenge, right? I mean, it's right. I guess it's why poets used to anyway uh write sonnets because they're you have to do it but you have to do it this way and so it, yeah. it forces you into making choices which as a writer is of course the sometimes i think the hardest thing to do is actually commit to a choice yes. but you have to do it <laughs> yes <laughs> you have to do it if you want the paycheck so, you yeah exactly so what what was the first play that you wrote after this sketch comedy and and were first able play to play i wrote was a play called Play sitting, and I was lucky enough that the, uh, that the first play I wrote got produced uh, at by New Jersey Repertory, which is a small but very well respected uh, rep company um, in New Jersey. Okay. And um, I, you know, I look back on it now, I, and I haven't read it and looked at it in years, but I am a little, I, you know, I cringe a little bit at it because it was my first play. But you know, it, it actually I was very lucky; it did very well. And um, and so then I, I also realized that. Um, uh, that I think I had more of a facility for writing um, than acting, perhaps. And certainly, um, you know, plays actually, you know, uh, are are more in demand than actors. So, okay, um, you know, or or you know, decent plays. Anyway, you know, halfway decent plays. Or and so um, I, you know, and again, it was something I could do while I worked. You know, okay. uh, or not while I worked, but you know, like, yeah. you know, as I had a job, I couldn't go on an audition and then land a gig and then be gone for three months and then come back and expecting to find my my job waiting there. That's so true. writing. Yeah, I started writing plays right after that, and then again, very lucky, I got my first play uh, produced, and uh, from there on in, I've had you know, uh, right. it's been a little bit easier for me to get produced. Okay, so if, if somebody's already a writer and they've always maybe thought about, um playwriting or maybe they haven't how how different is it to write a play um and then i guess actually to sell it i mean that would be another step right well selling it is very complicated and if anyone has any tips please email me um <laughs> but we'll put your email in the show notes <laughs> yeah please please um but if if the writing of it, and of course, I've never, I've never written a novel. For example, I've, I've written a short story or two, and I, and I blog, and that's a very different animal. Um, I think that 
Uh, and again, there are so many different types of novel writers, mm. or, you know, and short story writers. Uh, you know, you know, you can have, uh, you know, you can go from Ernest Hemingway to Toni Morrison, right? And, and they're just totally different, totally different animals. Those works, sure. but um, plays tend to demand uh, an incredible amount of aerodynamism. You can't have anything that slows things down. Every word in theory, and I don't always succeed at this, but every word literally has to drive the story forward. Okay. You can't be discursive in the least, where sometimes in some of my favorite novels, for example, the discursive parts can be sort of my favorite, right? Right. They, you know, you get to see another aspect of a character, right? Mm-hmm. Or you get to find out more about the environment, the culture wherein the story is set. You have to basically do it all with dialogue. And uh, you have to set the exposition up entirely with dialogue, um, the characters have to, I mean, the set designer and other people come into play. Absolutely. But you really have to establish the world of the play just through people talking. Right. And so, you know, um, and, and, and then there's no room because, you know, the difference is you can put a novel down and go and, and get a bite to eat and then yeah. come back to it and you feel like it. <clears throat> Audiences are there for two hours. Right. Um, and uh, so you've got to hold their attention. And the way you do that usually is, um, just the story's got to propel itself. Yeah, that that makes sense. Though. You can't really take a breath. Yeah, you you don't really need a whole. You can't have backstory, right? You really have to bring up the well, character. You have to have and... Backstory, okay. But you have How to provide does... it in the present, in the context in the... of dialogue, without sounding really clunky. I mean, you can't yeah. you know, have characters show up and say, "Well, here I am in 1968, and uh, boy, my my childhood as the son of an alcoholic lawyer is really haunting me now." I mean, you have to obviously. Right. But you can't, so you can't go into background and explain like a, I mean, you can have flashbacks, people do all the time, but you have to sort of make it in the present and you sort of glean the past from the, from the present. That's curious because I think that novel writers could learn a thing or two because most of us teach, if we're, if we teach writing or within our own, you know, editing our own book, we're like, okay. You don't need to go back and say when he was 24, he did this. <laughs> I say this because right, right. I, fa- I found a chunk in my first my draft that I'm working on. And you're like, okay, maybe you wrote that for yourself as an author, but you have to take that out because nobody wants the story to stop to, to right. know anything about that. You know, you have to bring it into the story, like you said, with mm-hmm. um, and using dialogue is always a piece of advice that we're given, but it's not easy. It's not easy to be like, oh, I don't think it you're is. a it journalist, right? Yes, I'm a yeah. journalist, went to Harvard. <laughs> right. I mean, and yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, it's it's something that I think, you know, that's sort of the carpentry of it, like the nuts and bolts, you know, that, that's the craft aspect of it. Right. And that's something I think a person gets better at the more they do it. Okay. Um, um, I'm, I'm a agnostic on the 10,000 hour rule, but I think there's some validity to it. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, I think that, you know, if you don't have talent, you know, I think you can learn 10,000, 10,000 hours can make you okay. But you know, if you're, yes. you know, <laughs> it's not going to make you great. Um, right. but you have to put in the work because for me, when I write, you know, four days out of five, it's not humming along and, you know, the story is writing itself. You know, those days happen, but, you know, they're not the norm. Um, so more times than not, you're just you're just trying to plow ahead and, and find your way through, especially if you don't outline. And I and I do not outline. You don't um, outline. You don't use save the cat. Oh, God, no, no. <laughs> I mean, that would 
I mean, and again, there are great writers who do and great mm-hmm. writers who don't, right? So there's no one right or wrong way. Yeah. Um, that would be, to me, that would be like a homework assignment. To me, that would be like um, figuring stuff out. Tom Stoppard once said, if I knew the ending of my plays, why would I bother to finish them? Um, so, Good point. <laughs> and I sort of adhere to that a little bit. And because when I write, I don't know necessarily what the play is about. I mm-hmm. try not to make the plays consciously about anything at first. I mean, they eventually have to be about something, right. obviously. Right. But, um, when I start writing a play, when it's not like a like a commission or someone saying, please write about this, and mm. and I do that, um, for a play for me to be interested in, it's almost inevitably in the form of a situation that I think of or, or read about where it's some sort of issue or quandary in which I think to myself, oh, that's really interesting. I don't know what they would do, and I don't know what I would do. Yeah. And so, and then I, you know, it's so uh, I start off based on that question to try and sort of find out what the characters think about. I mean, for me, I think we owe, well, I shouldn't say plural. I can just speak for myself. Um, Often, especially when I was er, earlier in my career, I would start off saying, I think this story is about this. Mm. And that to me is really dangerous and limiting because I think most for, I think a lot of artists, I don't think you should know what the story is about when you start mm-hmm. writing. I think you should have an impulse and a vague sense of it. But at some point, your characters are going to start telling you, no, I, I want to go this way. Yeah. And if you start, it's like walking um, a dog in a way, you know, and if you're trying to write like you're walking a dog, I think you're in a lot of problem, you know, because the dog may want to go this way. And you're like, no, we have to go this way. Right. Um, you know, that's good in dog walking. I think it's bad in, in telling a story because the characters generally understand themselves better than you do. You know, and I'm ma- yes. making it sound really mystical, but there, and because, and it's a lot more uh, less, less romantic than that. But you know, there is a point if it's going well that you do find yourself surprising yourself as you're yep. writing, and that to me is usually a, uh, for me anyway, it's a good sign. Yeah, I, there's there's always this debate with myself on this podcast because <laughs> the time is going to be on the outline to outline or not to outline, and I, mm-hmm. I in prep of this. You, you've surprised me with your answer because in prep of, of talking with you, I looked back at the Save the Cat Beats because I was like, I better know what I'm talking about <laughs> when I uh-huh. ask him this question. And I was like, oh, I don't even know. Like, just looking at it overwhelms me. I was like, I can't. Yeah. I can't well, I mean, see, that's the thing, too. And and I'm not trying to disparage the Save the Cat and Robert McKee kind of thing. Uh, and I think there's probably truth in what they're saying. But if you're a pr- if you're learning it as a formula, how can that not come across as formulaic? Um, I think for, then, for some hey, of us, it just doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't work. I mean, I, I've, you know, again, it would start to sound to me or feel to me like homework. Right. It's like, well, I didn't hit this beat on this page and I didn't do this beat on this page. And, yeah. you know, and I'm sure there's great truth to what there's, what, what they're saying, but if you arrive at it because it's been prescribed to you, yeah, I don't see how that's going to feel very fresh or interesting. But again, there and that's just for me. There are many writers who who feel differently. Um, yeah. you know, to I, me, like I'm sorry. Go ahead. I I just I think there's problems with both, right? Mm-hmm. We we no matter what you are, outliner, you might come on to like very contrived scenes that you're going to have to right. go back and fix, right. and us non-outliners might have to delete half of the. <laughs> yeah. And I'm okay with that. First of all, I'm, I'm, I'm a, uh, just a, a horribly, um, I'm horribly guilty of being an, uh, an overwriter and I'm okay with that when I'm writing it because um, I know that I can always, there's a delete key. I mean, I think I would literally be a different type of writer if I had, you know, um, 
started to write in the age of typewriters. Oh yeah, um, that's so true. <laughs> because I don't even know some 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 people have asked me, well, how many drafts do you write? And I said, I have no idea. Probably eight, nine hundred, because I will constantly go back and tweak things, especially when I'm like having a moment where I don't know where it's going. Um, and some editors and writers would say, never do that. But for me, uh, if I'm sort of percolating and waiting for something to come, um, I'll just go back and look and, re- and edit as I'm going along. Like every morning, I'm going to edit, you know, as I'm okay. and change things okay. uh, on the computer. I mean, the one rule I've always sort of had for myself and found to be sort of a useful um, um, guide is to be unbelievably forgiving and kind to yourself when you're writing and to just to be brutal to yourself when you're editing. Oh. Um, and like, you know, you have to, for me anyway, I try and compartmentalize it um, and say, you know, you know, don't be, be kind to yourself, Jack. And I say it in that voice. Uh, and then, um, and so, and, and don't even care, just get out what you're trying to get out. Cause in a few minutes, you're going to, you know, get a cup of tea and you're going to come back and then you're just going to be the biggest jerk in the world to your writing. Uh, and say, <laughs> yeah. well, I don't know what the hell this means. And where is this going? Right. Um, right. And, uh, you know, the brutal, the more brutal you are to your, to myself, I am, I found when, I'm writing the less brutal the people who are listening to it will be afterwards to me. Um, <laughs> so that's well, my, so there has to be a sort of um, a paradoxical approach for me. Right. To write. Right. 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 I think we all have our, our ways of writing. And I think that yeah. the only advice I can always give people is just to keep doing it. <laughs> like You got to try yeah. different things. Sometimes it comes yeah. easy. Some stories come easy Sometimes and some stories yeah. just don't. Um, and there, I don't know what to, what to do about that with people. Um, always try something new, I guess. Mm. But um, so as you're, as you were um, writing these plays, I want to talk about your online theater company, the well, new normal yes, rep. That would be lovely to talk about. Um, because first of all, theater's changing. I, COVID changed everything, right? Mm. I, I spoke to a woman out in um, San Francisco and she was devastated by how the theater world out there just shut down. And she wasn't sure it was going to come back. And San Francisco has some great theater out there. Um, uh, ACT in particular, but um, yeah, I mean, it just brutalized theater. Yeah. And so uh, a lot of my friends are, are actors and, and, and writers and uh, another near do wells. And uh, around April, I just reached out to a, a bunch of people who are, who are a good actors and B people. I really just enjoyed being around. That was almost more important um, <laughs> and said, why don't we just meet every week and have a zoom. We read a play on zoom every week. It can be anything. It can mm. be, we did like Shakespeare, Neil Simon, you name it. Okay. Um, and anyone can play any role they want, you know? Um, and it's just going to be fun. And first of all, it helped us keep our muscles flexed, you know, in shape a little bit. And it also was just for me, just a sanctuary. Uh, you know, one of the um, founders of our online company, New Normal Rep, uh, which can be found at newnormalrep.org. Um, uh, she put it really beautifully. She said that those readings were a little campfire in the in that yeah. in the dark of the pandemic. And um, a few months into it, we realized that we actually really have a very strong core of actors, and that the pandemic thing God is as ebbed it'll probably never entirely go away right. and this medium of telling people started doing play readings online all the time and, and even the best of them were uh, you know a little you know you had to really want to watch it mm. <laughs> you know uh, and so we thought well what we know what the limits of of this medium 
are, uh, but there are probably benefits to it as well. We tried to lean into it and, f- and figure it out as we've been along. Um, and so we tried to develop a sort of aesthetic. So we would, we first season we produced four plays um, and they were four like fully produced plays. Um, in other words, you didn't see people reading from a script right. and uh, we had green screens. in, so it looked like people were in the same room. Obviously, we you know the, the the viewer knows that they're not in the same room, right? right? And, <laughs> and so, and that's okay. Just like when you're watching TV, you know that the people aren't actually that small. You know, I mean, <laughs> you just sort of get over that because you're you become conditioned to it a little bit. Yeah. And so, our aesthetic was more, uh, I guess, like a Zoom meeting. Unfortunately, uh, in that we'd be the characters would be looking right at you, mm. even though they would be talking to other act, other the other characters as we recorded it. They right. would see the other actors. Right. Um, and what that sort of started to create, and a lot of viewers commented on this, said that felt like that they were actually in the scene yeah. in a way that they've never experienced before. So there's a sort of intensity and intimacy to it. And so I think it's a new medium. I'm not, I'm not comparing it to theater or television or anything like that, but I think it's a new thing. Yeah. And to, to us, one of the key advantages of this is that it's, it's so inexpensive for the viewer. It's uh, and right. it democratizes it. As long as you have access to internet, you can watch theater anywhere. And like you were saying, you don't get to the theater as much as you'd like to, and you're not alone. Right. And you live in a major cosmopolitan with, <laughs> with with lots of good theaters. Right. Um, most people in the world don't. Yeah. And I think it's just not on most people's radar to go to the theater. No. Um, and if they do, it's once a year to to a splashy musical. And I'm not against splashy musicals, but there's a whole other world of really good drama and comedy and blah blah blah. Right. Well, no, there there is that exist. problem. Like yeah. And so as much as we scroll through Netflix, we're gonna go to the Playbill and be like, I don't even know. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. And so one of the things we're very excited about uh, with this company, and that's why one of the reasons we're really in, intent on maintaining it. Uh, is because the idea that you can find a new way of telling a story is very mm-hmm. exciting. And also um, that you can reach people. And yeah. even if you live in a major metropolitan area, I mean, go, you know, going to the theater, I mean, without taking out a second mortgage is sometimes very hard to do. Yes. Um, become prohibitively expensive for a lot of people, except a very thin cohort. Yes. Um, and I think that's sort of a shame because I don't think, you know, theater and I don't think art is a luxury. I yeah, think it's unfortunately. Uh, probably an essential nutrient and m- many of us aren't getting it. So Right. I mean, we used to, it used to be for the masses, right? And now it's become yeah. this thing. I, I looked into going to see Music Man. <laughs> right. Great like, play. Love okay, play. I have to sell one child to go see this. Yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, it's exactly. New York, so I get it, but I, I still, I would have to get a hotel and all that. But yeah, it mm. used to be really it used to be the television for people, you know, so that you right. get to go and you get to see this and you, and there's something really special about theater when it's done well, when you, like you yeah. said, the, even the way that you guys have it, when they're looking straight at you, there's something different about that than watching television. That's yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And they both, and listen, television is amazing and, and does certain things brilliantly uh, and particularly well on film is great. I, I'm not, believe me, I'm big fans of them both. And uh, this isn't, and what we're doing isn't exactly theater and we don't pretend it is, but it's a theatrical experience. Yeah. It also allows us, we were talking earlier about um, uh, language and uh, the amount of language. It uh, plays sort of allow language to breathe more because you need a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And um, this does just as much, if not right. more so. 
Okay. So it's a very, it's a different experience, but um, yeah, I mean, even off-Broadway plays now um, are very expensive and, uh, and it's very, and it's very hard for plays to be performed. Certainly it's impossible on Broadway and all but impossible off-Broadway without having some sort of star involved. And so, um, you know, it's just good to have access to, to plays. We, we do new and or underproduced. Okay work from you know a whole host of different uh, writers of different um different worldviews different points of view different uh cultures and That's ethnic cool. groups and we just want a real diversity of viewpoints yeah. and, uh, the common denominator is that we all have to think that they're good plays okay know? okay so i mean in this way you guys only have to live in the same city you guys no. get together you practice online you record online mm-hmm. and i i can imagine that this is this would be so much better for the literature teachers. So when you're looking back at your your life as a literature teacher, like, okay, here's yeah. the play. <laughs> you know, like, right. Well, that's it. When I was teaching, whenever, I mean, I taught novels too, and obviously we would read the novels. And to me, the novels, I I, I would almost never show any movie that was based on the novel too, because that's a very different animal. Right. We'd study the novel. Um, but plays, I mean, the text, um, and this is both a drawback and a plus if you're a playwright. The text isn't the whole story. Mm. Um, whereas the novelist, you know, all every inch of that is on you. Um, as a playwright, I provided the basic structure and the blueprint. And now other really hopefully smart, talented people are coming in and adding their own spin to it. Even if they're saying the exact same words, two actors will give you very different feelings about a character or what's being said. And so if you're lucky enough, and and one of the relatively few smart things I've done in my life is that when I've worked with actors whom I've really respected very much is I've worked very hard to keep them in my life uh, artistically. And um, that company is, is, is essentially based and made up of a lot of those actors and really good actors, just like maybe a really good editor would, but a, a good, uh, really good actors, no matter how good you think your, your uh, story is, they're going to make it better. They're okay. going to elevate it. Oh, so you can't be super possessive, I guess, of your, of your story as a playwright. You have to allow that, that room for the actor to take the character and maybe even make them, different than what you thought well yeah just like when you're writing you have to be open to the idea of well this isn't what i thought it was but that's probably a good sign Mm -hmm. and uh and let me go with that um yeah i mean the nice thing about being a playwright is that um is is that you they can't change like a comma without your express approval uh and that's i think what they that's their gift to you for not really paying you very much (laughs) and so Um, but so, I mean, yes, I mean, I think, I think it'd be an idiot not to be open to different ideas and different suggestions and, and, and different thoughts. Um, but I also do get the final say. And so it's a fine line of being, having confidence, you have to have enough confidence in your work to be open to it being wrong, if that makes any sense. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Like, uh, in this audio play, step nine, it's out now on all podcast platforms, um, there's one scene in particular, and this, this was rare for me. There was a scene that I wrote, um, and all the actors in the play, I think without exception, told me, and I all trust and respect these people, said, you know, that 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 scene does not land. That does not do what you think, okay. what you think is doing. And I, and all usually when that does happen, I'll think, oh yeah, you're right. And I I and I thought to myself, 
really? No, I think it's landing. And whereas there are times where as long as I think it's landing, um, I will say, no, we're going to keep it this way. But at some point when seven really smart people (laughs) say to you, no, this isn't working. Yeah. I'd have to be an unbelievable idiot and egomaniac. And I'm only moderately both those things <laughs> to say, um, well, maybe they're, you know, maybe they're right and I'm wrong. Right. And so I ended up going back and and rewriting the scene in, in a very different context in a very different way. Um, what I liked about the scene, I was able to keep, but everything they had objections to about the scene, uh, because of the way I I, I read uh jiggered it they were okay with him now now the scene works for it so and if it were up to me i wouldn't have done that and uh i think the play would have been the worst for it right that's it i mean you almost got very like you said seven very smart people editing that one scene i mean sometimes that hurts our ego for sure but there are some times that that would be nice (laughs) instead of giving that bad review on amazon so yeah well (laughs) well exactly it's always yeah better in the rehearsal room than in a than in the online uh you know uh comment section the you know it's a weird thing i i am you always it's a mixture of humility and uh a certain amount of confidence i mean obviously if I'm if I've written a story and I've given it to anyone else to read, obviously I have to have some confidence because mm-hmm. um, you're you're risking doing that. So I have to have confidence in the story and I have to have enough confidence that what I'm going to do is going to work. That I can therefore listen to other smart people and see how we can improve it. We're all, we all yeah. have the same goal. Yeah. Um, and I think if the more insecure you are as a writer, the less open you are. To be, ah, if that makes point. sense, maybe. yeah, that's a good point. So, yeah. I, I do want to talk about the podcast platform because, mm. um, about step nine and what what made you decide to do is it only audio? Then, is it's only audio, okay? Um, it's it's a radio play, it's what they used to call radio plays. You oh know? my gosh, I love old radio plays, yeah. <laughs> um, it's it's a radio play, and in the UK, for example, it's they do that, they've done that all the time, they still uh, really. Oh, yeah, it's very much just a part of their culture. They'll say, you know, like two or three times a week on BBC Radio or, or whatever. You know, there'll be, a, know they'll be a, a comedy or a drama radio play. Yeah. That's and we cool. sort of got rid of that. It's sort of making a comeback a little bit. But, um, yeah, it's an audio play. So it's a play. I mean, there's there's a soundscape and mm-hmm. there's all these things. Very minimal, um, almost no stage direction, only sort of in the beginnings and ends of scene to kind of orient you. Um and uh, we chose this play uh, uh, because, um, and it happens to be a play of mine. And I also, I just want everyone to get the impression that we just do my plays. We do many <laughs> other writers. <laughs> I just, but we did this play um, because it, like I said earlier, there's seven characters in it. Okay. And that would make it almost impossible to produce by today's theatrical standards, which is yeah. crazy. It's also a little long-ish. I mean, I think it's as long as it needs to be to tell the story. Um, and so it also so that lent itself to be to breaking it up into episodes. Right. Okay. So um, you know, you can listen to it all at once if you want, but if you all you also can listen to it in discrete episodes. Uh there are eight of them all together. Now, if we were really clever, we would have made them nine episodes, but we <laughs> We couldn't really get there dramatically. <laughs> you didn't want to just like squeeze it into. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it just karma doesn't work like that. Yeah. So it's called step nine. What, what is, uh, do you, they just look for that on the podcast? 
Ask. Yeah, they would. Uh, step nine, and then uh, they would also be wise to put in new normal rep on, okay. any, on any any podcast platform, and uh, it will pop up. So then, how did you guys um, like the the experience of podcast or like I guess radio? radio I mean, play. podcasting basically is almost like radio a little bit, right? right? Versus yeah, sure. the 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 visual medium. We found that we loved it, and uh, it was a little um bold of us a little gutsy of us because we um you know working under relatively constrained budget and so we recorded the the whole thing in one day which afterwards the sound engineer who uh, was in at the studio who did the sound for us um had said to us boy you you guys really that's rare. It's almost impossible to do that. And so I think had to be known <laughs> that, that's an example too <laughs> of like following these rule books. Had we followed this rule book, we would, know, we would have been told, well, you can't do that. Right. But we found out that we could. Um, and we loved it. First of all, the company's two years old or, or yeah, it was over two years old at that point. We had never met many, uh, uh, a lot of, a lot of us have never met in person. Oh, <laughs> and okay. So, I mean, I had met everyone in person just about, but a lot of people hadn't. And so that was fun. And we got to act in the same room with each other, which was an immense amount of fun. Oh, so and you actually got together for this one. Yeah, yeah. Oh. In, a, in a podcast studio, in fact. Oh, wow. And um, I think we started recording at like mm, one, noon, one o'clock, and we had, to be, we had to be done by nine. That was a hard out. Um, and we got finished at 8.45. But uh, uh, I mean, that also we, we rehearsed it a lot ahead, ahead of time. Right. So we felt confident. Yeah. And you guys are professionals. You get me in there yeah, and I'd be like, hey, sorry. <laughs> well, but I mean, a lot, it was funny, though, because our director, Eleanor Handley, who, who's who's a brilliant actor. This is her first time directing, but she's an amazing director as well, which is unsurprising to me. But a lot of it, too, that speaks to the v- value of a repertory company, because we all knew each other. We worked mm. with each other a lot. So there's a sort of shorthand. Um, but nonetheless. Uh, Carol Todd, who plays the lead, um, often we'd do a scene like in one take and Eleanor would be like, that's it, we got it. And Carol and other actors too would, would be panicking. He's like, no, 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 no. I was just, I was just warming up. That, that, that's not the one I want. Um, but like a writer and an editor, very often an actor um, and a director, the director will know better. Right, you know, um, right. When I was acting a lot, I'm actually acting in this too, but I, I'm not, I don't act that much anymore. But inevitably the moments when I thought, I come off the stage and think, oh man, I really nailed it. People would come up to me and say, are you okay? What happened there? (laughs) So so it's usually a sign, I think with writers too, when you feel great about something, sometimes it's a sign you're a little being a little (laughs) self-indulgent. So true. You should go back and get it edited. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That, I mean, it it probably helps that being theater actors, like you do have mm. to go out there and you have to perform, right? Whether you're on or off, like totally, that's it. absolutely. That was a huge, that was a huge, uh, you know, advantage to us. Boy, right. it took a long time to think of that word, but yeah. And how was it yeah. together with with that being the first time? Do you guys want to do it again? We Are would, you gonna? We loved it. Oh yeah, we yeah we definitely would do it again. We certainly had a very nice time at the bar afterwards, uh, which <laughs> is half the reason actors get into acting in the first place. But um. It was great. It was great. It's a very heavy, I mean, the uh, without spoiling anything, but the basic premise, uh, it's called Step Nine because uh, in uh, recovery, um, you know, uh, in drug and alcohol recovery, there are 12 steps famously. Mm-hmm. And the ninth step is making amends, um, uh. reaching out to people you've wronged. Um, one of the characters in this play is doing that. However, it the ninth step 
says explicitly, if reaching out to the person is going to traumatize them and be bad for them, you sh- you can't do that. But this but this person didn't get that memo. This is based on a real story. The premise, um, anyway, is based on a real story, which is a woman who was uh, in college uh, was raped and uh, was back in the late eighties and nineties, and um, you know she wasn't able to really get anywhere. That you know, and you know the the perpetrator wasn't really punished in any way. And right. unfortunately, it's a very familiar story right. in that sense. But and then she went on to live her life as, as best she could, right. uh, and. 30 years later, she gets a letter from her rapist apologizing. Oh, God. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that, that really happened. That part is true. And at that point, I said, I don't want to know any more about the story because it's such a great story, such a great premise for a play. Uh, and then I, and so that I, I then proceeded on my own way. And it ends up being, you know, the, my character, uh, the central character um, is a woman named Emily who is a writer herself. She's a poet. And um, she's, believes that she is fundamentally brilliant at compartmentalizing her life. Um, people around her don't, don't quite agree with her. Once this comes to light, uh, she has a mother um, who is a, a very sharp uh, lawyer and, and a daughter who's a very smart uh, college student, a very, a very pro uh, activist. They're all staunch feminists, but they're from three ge- different generations. Mm. And, Part of the interesting thing about the play, which I had no idea the play would be about when I started writing it, um, it's really in many ways about how do these three generations of women view how to solve this and what's the best Ooh, response? To this? Cool. Turns out they're all very different responses. Right. Um, and so that's having said that, it's not. I mean, there there's, there's also a lot of jokes. <laughs> you know, it's also hopefully entertaining and funny along the way. So it's not just this. Oh my god, uh, incredibly. <laughs> Uh, depressing, you know, grim, bleak thing. It's dealing about a very, with uh, a very uh, hard, heavy subject, but it's doing so in a way I hope is, um, without being glib, entertaining. Yeah. And um, and and you want to get to know and like these characters. And I hope you do. Yeah, I I I hope that more um, that you guys put out more radio plays, podcast plays, whatever we call them now. Yeah. And- I hope more people do. I mean, I think it's an excellent medium. There is, you know, audiobooks are becoming a bigger deal. Exactly. The biggest problem with audio is paying the actors. <laughs> it's like the amount of money you have to pay. Yeah, it, it is. It definitely is. Um, I mean, audio, the actual company audio is, um, is started doing a lot of uh, commissioning, a lot of dramatic work and uh, plays uh, unique and original to, to uh, audible. Okay. Um, I said audio before I meant audible. Um and uh, that was sort of the hint to me. It was sort of like the, uh, I guess, the opposite of a canary in a coal mine. <laughs> it was sort of the yeah. sign that something is, is is blossoming. Yeah. And so that gave us the idea to to push ahead with it. Yeah, so I we think we love the experience. I think Loved it's it. awesome. I mean, it, like you said, even with the the medium of bringing people together on sort of the Zoom, mm. you know, and doing theater that mm-hmm. way, this brings theater to people who don't live near a theater. I mean, that's, exactly you know, right. that dramatic. This, this is absolutely free. So uh, oh, we wanted this better. to be free. We wanted to get people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we wanted it to be this to be free because we really felt, you know, most of the world, unfortunately not all of it, but most of the world uh, has access to podcasts. And so we want to give them, you know, um, yeah, and, we, and we're very proud of the product. And so we want to allow as many people as possible to hear it and to sort of discover that there are such things as audio dramas and then to go on to 
you know, find other things in that in that capacity. And our online plays um, generally, uh, we always try to keep the cost down. I think the cost was like twenty bucks. And but if you were a student or a fellow theater person, you could get them for ten. We really just wanted to make it, yeah, you know, um, available to people. Yeah, yeah. And uh, speaking of which, if I yes. can plug one of our plays, and again, it's a play of mine, and just uh, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed by that, but <laughs> because of union, because of union rules, we, it was much cheaper for us to do one of mine. Oh, okay. Um, uh, from our place in the original season um, called Jericho, it's available. Um, to listeners of this podcast, uh, they would just have to go to newnormalrep.org slash bonus, and then it'll ask you for a password, and that password is uh, capital letters N-N-R, and then 2022, and then oh. you can watch um, the whole play. Directed by Marsha Mason, who is... It was, cool. it was pretty thrilling. Well, we'll, we'll have, I'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, but Thank that's you. newnormalrep.org forward slash bonus. Yes. And then NNR capitalized 2022. That's very cool. I, I mean, I think this, the arts, unfortunately, always suffer every time the mm-hmm. economy goes, whatever it's doing. Right. And unfortunately, it looks like some sort of world, something happening. So, I yeah. mean, the arts should stick together more than anything. And if we have to yeah. finagle different art forms or bring back, you know, it's almost like bringing back the old radio ones and putting it into a new medium. I mean, right. there's always a way to move forward, right? And to bring art to other people. I think yeah, this is amazing. And a- again, it's, you know, another, to me, I mean, I think formulas can be good guideposts, but I think that they shouldn't be walls. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. And I think that, you know, if, you know, you, there's no no reason you can't mix, you know, yeah. media yeah. and um, and evolve with whatever the times demand. Absolutely. And I know quite a few novelists that I work with struggle with dialogue. And mm. as you talk, I I think more than anything, listening to plays or watching plays would help that because it's really, like you said, you're using specific words. You're not in <laughs> as few as you can and making, and then they have to perform it. So it can't sound right. canned. Otherwise that's right. boring and everyone will leave at halftime or what do we call that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly right. And I mean, they're also great. I mean, I'm, I'm not a huge fan. I, I don't I have to just make me sound, uh, very uh, uneducated, but I'm not a huge fan of Hemingway's novels really at all. And, but some of his shorts, I used to, when I taught writing, I would give my students a lot of his short stories mm-hmm. because he was a master of dialogue for a short story writer, even right. like in playwriting classes, I'd make them read like the killers or Hills like white elephants. And it's almost, those stories are almost entirely dialogue. And in that dialogue, almost nothing explicit is said. Yeah, <laughs> And yet everything is just under the surface. And that's, Another way of, I mean, if you can, you know, get that across as a writer, you know, we talked about clunky exposition, like, oh, here I am in 1968. That's a masterclass in the opposite of that, where if right. you're paying attention and, I, you know, in the like a reader too, for, for novels, if you make the audience sort of lean in a little bit. So first of all, you have to be interesting and compelling, but if you make them lean in and, that, and sort of meet them halfway and, ha- and have to make them meet you halfway, uh, you've got them. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So I I think that before we used to always be part of the arts, right? Now I feel like, Mm -hmm. I don't know about theater people, but novelists are like in their little closets trying to pound out their novels and then getting writer's block. Like if you would just 
get out to another art form, you might actually find more creativity. Oh, yeah. And, and just read it. <laughs> to me, it's just reading everything, you know, read everything and get your hands on mm. uh, because that'll a be inspiring and B, it'll inform you. And um, yeah, like I read, I love to read novels um, and I love to read them just for the pleasure of reading them, but inevitably it's influenced my storytelling. Right. Right. And if we see more plays or listen to more plays, it'll influence our, our storytelling as well. So, so you have, so new normal rep has the visual um, online theater company. You also right. have the podcast, the audio. So right. do you guys have anything else? <laughs> well, we have, uh, we have a, like a regular podcast, which is right, right now the, the audio plays on that regular podcast um, channel, but so we haven't done any uh, like interview podcasts in mm. a while. Um, just cause we want this to give the play, uh, room to breathe. And so but we'll be getting back to that. We have a YouTube channel, okay. which has, um, which has some, uh, additional materials some like short, uh, monologues and plays. And we have a couple of sketches and extra, basically free material. Um, and so, yeah, we're just trying to spread the word. Yeah, absolutely. So is that then, is that new normal rep on YouTube as well? Yes. Okay. Yes. That's our YouTube channel. Yeah. So there's all these different places that we can go and get more into theater, which I, I love in, in plays. And I, I do think I say this genuinely. I think that as writers, whatever medium it is, we can learn from each other. And oh, if yeah. anybody's, if anyone's really good at dialogue and doesn't really like the prose part, maybe try your hand at playwriting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I, my sense of language is, been developed as much by Elvis Costello as any playwright I can think of, you know? So it's, yeah, it's just anything that works for you. Yeah. Steal it shamelessly. And then hopefully it'll become your own. Otherwise you've got a plagiarism case. (laughs) This is true. Well, we have, so we have two websites for people to find you at. And of course the links will be in the show notes. Mm. We have newnormalrep.org. And then jackcanforawriter.com. Yes. Right. And they probably cross over. So you can probably find, I see the podcast, um, your plays, your writing coaching. So all these different Mm -hmm. things we will have in the show notes, as well as the bonus um, NNR 2022. So people can go listen. Is it watch? Watch. Watch. Watch Watch that. There you go. Online. Yeah. I'm going to do this while I make dinner because I'm always looking for something to listen to. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Great. Because I can't see my television, which is a blessing and a, you know, a curse. Curse, yeah. <laughs> like, I need to do something. Well, thank you so much, Jack, for coming on. It's been really interesting talking to you. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Hey, you're still listening. Since you are, could you do me a favor and head over to the app that you're listening to this episode on and hit the subscribe button and then rate and review the show? It would really help the Pencils and Lipstick podcast get out into the world. And if you're enjoying the podcast, well, then there might be more people out there who would enjoy it as well. If you want to find out more about me, you can head over to catcaldwell.com. I have my story over there, my books, my interactive journals, my one-on-one coaching information, and information on my creative writing community membership group. If you're looking to write a book or you are a writer and you just want to find out more about how to write, how to publish, how to format, how to market, and all the things that go into being an author these days, check out the membership group. 
There is a 14 free day trial that you can try it out, get into the masterminds, find out all the goodies that we are talking about in the group. I would love to see you there.